Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Please welcome my guest today, Charles Williams, who is a former special agent with the FBI and now a private investigator. Good morning, Charles. Good morning, Francie. How are you today? I'm great. So just before we get started, I have one announcement real quick. Do not forget to check out the New Delhi, India Conference of the Council of International Investigators, October 20th to the 25th. For information, go to www.c, like Charles, cii2.org. So, Charles, you were with the FBI as a special agent for 23 years. Yes, that's correct. Okay, and then you started your own agency, uh, which is called HDI Investigation, Inc.? Yes, that's the correct name. Yeah, so you you were involved in all kinds of things. Uh, How did you get involved? How did you get to the FBI anyway? How did that happen? Well, well that's a funny experience. I was, I was working at the bank. Actually, I graduated from Temple University back in the late 70s, and I eventually ended up working at a commercial bank as an assistant branch manager. I was getting kind of bored with that, and uh, this guy came in the bank and wanted to open an account. I said, not a problem. I can help you with that, sir. I just need to see some ID. Then he whips out this bag and says, <laughs> FBI. Said, Whoa, okay, okay. I thought you guys were a myth. <laughs> it's real. I asked the guy, what did I, what did I need to get in there? Because I was getting bored. Like I said, bored with the, uh, with the bank. And he told me everything I needed, and I had all those things. So I applied right away. And next thing you know, I'm down at the FBI Academy in Quantico. Oh, my goodness. You must have thought you'd got died and gone to heaven. Oh, it, it was quite interesting. Uh, the Academy was about 16, 16 and a half weeks long. Everything you can think of you had to do. And when I left the Academy, I went off to... Uh, Albany, then Pittsburgh, ended up in New York City for 21 years, also worked in um, Washington, D.C. area, and while at, in New York, I worked in uh, foreign counterintelligence, I worked terrorism, I worked uh, criminal work, I worked on the FBI Fugitive Task Force for almost 14 years. I worked civil rights, I worked both World Trade Center bombings, the one in 93, and of course, the one in 9-11. I worked the 1998 embassy bombing over in Africa. I was in Africa for three to four months, living there and working there as well. Hmm. So that, was was in, qu- that was in Tanzania? Yes, Is that the one in Tanzania. Yeah. Tanzania, I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, of course. Um, so now you list that you were a certified assessor with the FBI. What does that mean? What is a certified assessor? Assessor, assessor you, have three, you have three agent panel, and their job is to travel around the country interviewing prospective FBI agent candidates, people who want to join the FBI. So we Uh have some 15 questions, so I I did a whole lot of those during my FBI career. But it was interesting because you try, you almost, you you see that you're getting the quality of agents that you want to see in the FBI, so it was was Mm. interesting and worth doing. Interesting, And, and then it says you're a street survival agent. What does that mean? 
Well, because I worked on the task force, I mean, it wasn't like I was behind a desk all the time. I spent 13, 14 years going to some of the worst places you can think of, mm-hmm. looking for some of the worst people you could think of. So you had to know how to survive on the street. So we got kind of extra training for being on this task force. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, and, and, of course, you mentioned some of the, the uh, you said the World Trade Center investigations. Um, you were involved in a, a famous investigation, the Crown Heights investigation. That was pretty famous. Yes, yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting. And then you broke out. <laughs> you broke out of the FBI and started your own agency. And yeah, actually, I retired early. I wanted to challenge myself by trying something new. I felt that I got a lot of the FBI. It was exciting. It was all kinds of things and traveling around the world. But I said, let me try something new. Let me see if I can challenge myself by starting my own business. And uh, next thing I, I got my license in um, North Carolina, New Jersey, and um, New York. And then moving mm-hmm. down to Charlotte. Interesting. And so what was your focus? What did you want to do when you uh, started your own agency? Well, at first I wasn't sure. You know, when you're new, you do everything. I, I catch dogs. Uh, you name it, I would do it. <laughs> Whatever there was available to do, I did malpractice work in New York City. I did malpractice work in uh, upstate New York. Then eventually, as I got to know people and words started getting around about what I could do, I started specializing in criminal defense cases. I have about 25, maybe 30 lawyers I work for, and we've done hundreds and hundreds of uh, criminal cases to include about 75 murder cases. So we're pretty much specializing in criminal work and some personal injury work as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I, you know, um, I have to say on your, on your personal life, I always, I'm always interested in what people do in their personal life. And you, um, you're a track coach and youth football coach. You played football in college. You had, you had a, did you have a football scholarship? Yes, for the football scholarship. I played free safety for Temple University. Free we safety. Penn State wow. last week. Okay, okay, very good. <laughs> and so you were, so then you became a youth uh, track and football coach, mm-hmm. and you you have a a second degree black belt. I'm impressed. Yes, in judo. I'm impressed. That's very good. Okay, and then so let's talk about your um, the book you wrote. Mm-hmm. called CARE, C-A-R-E, An Investigative Way of Life. I'm very interested in hearing um, your ideas about interviewing and interrogation. Okay. Where do you want me to start? Well, tell us what, first of all, tell us why you wrote the book. Well, I wrote the book because um, I had been so successful in, in interviewing, and oftentimes in the FBI, people, new agents would ask me, well, Charles, how did you do that? And how did you do that? And how did you get him to confess? And how did you get information how did you how did you do this and how did you do that and I, I would get requests from numerous agents and agents in the FBI to help them develop informants to help them with their cases so then when I came down here started working um, as a, a private investigator well, well the FBI you're kind of on the, on the law enforcement side you hear that you're, mm-hmm. you're working with the prosecutors here is just the opposite now I'm on the criminal defense side and I, and I started seeing that the same skills that I used on the law enforcement side with the same skills that I applied on the criminal defense side. So I said, exactly. you know, I need to write this down. Because I would tell lawyers, look, he'll tell me the truth. And they say, what? I said, yeah, he will. And they would say, how do you do that? And I would, I would be able to tell them, look, he'll tell me the truth after three visits. They'll say, yeah, right. And I say, he will. So eventually I said, you know, let me write this down. Let me, let me write all this down. I had one person say, Charles, you got a 
There's so much in your head, you should write it down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what does CARE stand for? Well, CARE stands for Control, Assessment, Relationship, and Exit. Those are the four pillars of the CARE system. And also, see, CARE is a break from tradition. CARE is not your traditional type of interview. You used to the very stoic person saying, oh, tell me what happened and give me just the facts and tell me what happened right now. You know, those kinds of things. When you start interjecting the word feeling and care, but see, the thing about care is that when you care, it gives you more options. And that's really one of the secrets about the system. So when you first see the name, you know it's going to be something different. It's not your usual, what you're used to seeing in terms of interviewing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, can you, in, in just a few words, can you, can you describe what's different in your system? Because there's a lot of interviewing and interrogation training out there. What's different about yours other than, I guess, you care about people? Well, there's four, there's four things that makes, makes care a unique. Well, actually, it's a whole lot of things that makes care unique. But okay. because of time, I'll, I'll just talk about four of them in general. One is that care, the care system works. You know, my record in the FBI and here as a criminal defense investigator proves that it works. I had one example where I was in the FBI, and we had a, a guy who was wanted for murder, and he was in Brooklyn on near Eastern Parkway. So we went to Eastern Parkway looking for this guy. Of course, when we get there, he's not there. So we decided, okay, you know what, let's, let's leave, and we'll come back and catch him. We don't want him seeing us in front of the house or standing around. So mm-hmm. we leave the apartment. We started walking up the street. We get halfway up the street, and who do we see? The subject coming towards us. And he's not sure who we are, and mm-hmm. we're not sure who he is. But at some point, we both recognize who, who the parties are. He mm-hmm. looks at us. We look at him. We look at each other. All of a sudden, he breaks off running down the street. I break off chasing the guy. You know, he's about maybe 50 feet away, and I'm getting closer, 40 feet away. Then he's 30. I'm getting closer. I can feel him breathing. I can feel him huffing and puffing. I know I got him. Then he makes this quick turn to um, this apartment complex. And I knew I was just behind him. There's no way he's going to get away. There's no way he's going to get inside that door or get his key out or hit the button to get inside the door before I can catch him. And when I turned the corner, he's gone, like he disappeared. Mm-hmm. But we knew he was in the building. And so what we did at that point, we said, let's, let's surround the building. Let's put some guys in the back, some guys on top, some guys in the front. And the police ended up showing up as well. They put helicopters up. And we're all standing outside trying to figure out what we're going to do. And there were these two girls who were sitting on a windowsill down the street. I said, hold up, fellas. Take a break for a minute. Just hold everybody. Hold be a place where everybody is. I'm going to go find out where this guy is. And the first question to me, they said, well, how are you going to find it out? Just give me a minute. I'll be back in three to four minutes, and I'm going to tell you where he is. So as I'm walking towards these two young ladies, I'm walking. I'm assessing who they are. You know, I'm looking at their age, what they're wearing, what they're talking, how their demeanor is. They're sitting in the windowsill of all things. So when mm-hmm. I get to the windowsill, I say, excuse me, ladies. Quite beautiful ladies, more beautiful than the, the day. They start giggling, they start laughing. And I say, you know, it's, you, know you guys are kind of cool sitting up there in the windowsill. You know, I guess you guys don't miss much around here, huh? They said, no, nah, no. Nah. I, I guess you guys are pretty sharp, huh? They said, yeah, we're pretty sharp. I said, you know, you know a guy named Leroy? They said, yeah, he lives across the street. I said, yeah, I was over there. Matter of fact, I was just got chasing Leroy down the street. You know, he got to that building over there, and he went in so fast, I couldn't believe what happened. So I thought it was like a magician or something. They said, oh, no, no, there's a button that they hit. See, they're drug dealers. So when they get to this door and the police show up, they'll hit this button and get some, get, get some in really quick, and the police can't find them. I said, oh, I said, you two know everything, huh? I guess because you're sitting on the windowsill, huh? 
I said, tell you what, do me a favor, I'll do you a favor. Because we know Leroy's a knucklehead, right? He said, yeah. I said, I'll rid the neighborhood of one less knucklehead if you can tell me where he is. So I walked back to the supervisor and said, he's on the third floor, apartment H. See, that's the care system. That's it in a nutshell, how it works. So it's a system that works. In addition to that, it's a complete interference system. If you see other systems, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, one aspect of it. But, but the care system starts from preparation. It takes you all the way to the end. It gives you detailed steps. It tells you about the stages. It tells you how to assess a person. It tells you what to do when that person is lying. It tells you what to do when that person doesn't want to talk to you. It tells you when that person is difficult. It tells you what to do. It, it tells you from beginning to end and doesn't miss a thing. So, matter of fact, when I was in the FBI Academy down in Quantico, and they're making a movie of Quantico now, an instructor came in to talk about interviewing. He talked about, you know, if the person looks, if his eyes are looking to his left or to his right, he's lying, and if he's, um, you know, doing this, then he's doing this, and if you see pronouns in his statement, that means this and that. I'm like, it doesn't make any sense to me. You know, when you're, when you're talking to someone, you're not looking at your eyes. You don't have time for that. So an assistant didn't address, what if he doesn't want to talk to me? What if uh-huh. he is lying? What do I do? But the care system addresses all of that. So it's a system that works, and it's a complete system that prepares you for all aspects of the interview. In addition, the care system is based on natural principles. So you're looking at someone's eyes is not a natural principle, but the relationships where you are, like the same skills that you use in meeting a, a lady or meeting a guy or talking to your boss, the same problems that are in that you find in talking to your boss or the same situation in talking to your children when they want to borrow the car or your daughter's wearing the wrong kind of clothes. Mm-hmm. All those things are natural principles that you use in order to uh, convey what you want or for them to get their way. It's all natural principles that the care system utilizes. We take it and we focus it and we enhance those principles. We, we diminish the ones that are negative, and we enhance the ones that, that are positive. But we give it focus like a laser beam. So what CARE does is a system that works. It's a complete system, and we use natural principles that are easy for the interviewer to understand and, and to develop. And all those principles are in the CARE system. And finally, it's a defined methodology. You, it tells you what to do. So because it's defined methodology in terms of what you're doing and how you conduct an interview, it's easy for you to measure your performance, mm-hmm. easy for you to evaluate your performance, plus it's easy for you to make adjustments and fine-tune what you're doing. It's like practicing the, you're practicing the correct method, methodology over and over again. You're repeating it. And basically, you get, you get good. You get better from repeating something. It's like a basketball. Sure, shot. sure. You're missing a foul Wait. shot. You have to find a correct way to shoot the ball, and you keep repeating once you get the correct way. And that's what the care system is. So, you know, Charles, what I'm, what I'm hearing, let me just say that I, some people, when they, uh, they go into an interview or interrogation mode, and they, and they end up talking different than they would to a regular person. So what you just said about talking to those two girls is the way you'd talk to them if you'd met them someplace else. You know, it's funny you said that because it's just what I was thinking about. Because at one time I'll ask people a question. I say, "How do you talk to a criminal?" And they'll sit there and they'll think. They'll start wondering, like, "How do you talk to a criminal?" You know, mm-hmm. somebody that committed a murder. And I, and I'm basically telling me, "You talk to a criminal the same way you talk to anybody. Right. He's a person. Whether he's a criminal, whether he's not, he's still a person. So he's subject to the same conditions that any other human being is. And that that's the beauty of the care system." 
You know, it allows and, you to interview anyone effectively. Exactly. Instead of the Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> well, see, the, the Joe Friday, just the fact doesn't work. It, right. it works if you have a big hammer to hit someone with, and it might work. <laughs> but if you don't, it doesn't work. You have to build a relationship because CARE stands for Control Assessment Relationship. See, the relationship is what allows you to ask for what you want. Because in the CARE system, who, who, whoever is in control is the person that gets what they want. So it's very important to be in control. And the assessment that you do tells you how, how or it kind of helps you paint the road of how to get in control. But it's about building a relationship. Because the relationship is the platform on which you're going to ask for what you want. The strength of the relationship determines what you get. It's like a, um, it's, 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 the, it's the platform for the exchange from what he wants and from what you want. Without that relationship, there's no platform. If it's weak, you're going to get something that's weak. So mm-hmm. it, it all depends on the relationship. Excellent. You know, um, you are quoted in the book, you, uh, you write down in your book that uh, essentially when an interviewer does something in an interview, there should be a clear corresponding expectation and a reason for doing it as well. And so, so are you planning when you go into an interview? Because with these two girls, that was on the fly. So well, how much planning goes in goes into uh, an interview or interrogation? Well, it's, it's not that you're planning. See, even with the girls, it was not really. It was there was a, a stage. The interview has its stages, okay. and there's, there's the preparation stage. When I saw those girls, I started preparing immediately. As I was walking over, if it took me a minute to get to get over there, that was a minute worth of preparation. I'm preparing myself. I'm getting myself the right mindset, the right interviewing mindset. My focus is on what I have to do. So I'm preparing myself mentally, you know, and I'm also taking in the whole situation, the whole block, the whole neighborhood. They're sitting in the windowsill. So I'm taking notes, and that's part of preparation. When I get there, it's time for control. See, when the moment I saw them in the windowsill, I was in control. I knew where I wanted to go. They okay. didn't know I was in control because the best control is when the person doesn't know you're in control. Right. That's the best control. Okay. Then as, as I was talking to them, I was assessing what they were going to do. So, I, so there were steps being taken. In okay. terms of planning, see, I don't plan every detail because come, you don't know what's going to happen. All right. Let's come back to that because I want to get down these steps. There's so much more to talk about. You're listening to former FBI agent Charles Williams. We will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Private investigator and former FBI special agent Charles Robinson, or Charles Williams, is an expert in interview and interrogation. We're just discussing the steps. So, Charles, would you mind just taking us through the steps that you go through um, to get to the end of your interview, from okay. step one I'll, all the way to the end? Okay, I'll tell one story here. I had this one particular case where there were three people involved in this case, and uh, I'll shorten it a tad. They were in a car. Uh, we'll say Abraham and Simon. They were brothers. Uh-huh. Peter is in the car with them. Okay? At some point, Simon gets out of the car, shoots an AK-47 and kills someone. Gets back in the car. Eventually, this gets to the police. Eventually, they arrest um, Peter, and they question Peter, and they let Peter go. Peter said, I didn't do it. I didn't get out the car. And he didn't get out the car. Mm-hmm. Simon, they arrest Simon later on. He says, I didn't do it. Peter did it. And Peter's prints are on the gun. So they go back and find Peter and they arrest Peter. And they keep Simon. Now, the only other witness to this case is Abraham, who happens to be Simon's big brother. Now, they're all friends. But Peter is a better friend than Abraham. So I'm speaking with the lawyer, defense lawyer. He said, well, look, there are no other witnesses. I said, yes, there's Abraham. I'll go talk to him. He said, well, there's no way Abraham's going to talk to you. He's not going to tell on his brother. You don't know Abraham. He doesn't know you. You don't have any big stick over his head. You have no leverage. You have nothing to make Abraham tell you or admit that his brother did it. Abraham loves his brother. You know, he's a tight-knit family. He's a wild man, but he's a tight-knit family. He's not going to help you. So I said, the lawyer, not a problem. So I go over and I talk to Peter for a minute. I said, Peter, look, tell me everything you know about Abraham. What kind of guy is he? So he tells me he played football together and they, that Abraham was a wild guy. He was in gunfights. He's, he's in prison right now for an unrelated, unrelated armed robbery. He's a real tough guy and everybody's afraid of him in the neighborhood. He's a wild guy. He said he used to hang out with Peter, I mean with Abraham, but he stopped because Abraham was just too wild, you know, shooting mm-hmm. up people and getting in gun, gunfights. I said, okay, that's fine. But tell me, I don't want to know about him, you know, things he's done, a little laundry list. Tell me who he is, what kind of person is he. Tell me about his character. 
Tell me what he believes in. Tell me what, what, what's important to him. Tell him what he loves. Tell me what he loves and hates. So that section is part of preparation. I don't want to go in there knowing as much about him as I can. So that's why I want to talk to Peter. So I got some anchors to work with. Mm-hmm. You know, and I got some hurdles to get over. So this is one of the things about interviewing. When you get used to bullying people and trying to intimidate people and, you know, being nasty and rude, the problem with that is it, it hampers and hinders your development as, a, as an interviewer. Because exactly. you're not going to always have something to threaten somebody with. If they don't work, what do you do? So I, I go to the, to the prison. I get permission to go. And Abraham's sitting there. As I said before, he doesn't know me from a can of paint. There's nothing I have to give him. There's nothing I have to threaten him with. I have nothing at all. So I'm asking him to put, his, put himself at risk by saying he knows something about this. And I'm asking him to say his brother did it and Peter didn't. That, that, was, that, was, that was what I call one of my seemingly hopeless interviews. <laughs> so, so I walk into the prison, introduce myself to, um, to Abraham, which is the first stage in the uh, interviewing process. This is the, the second stage to control. The first stage of control is preparation. The second step is introduction. So I introduce myself. Hey, you know, my name is Charles. You know, I'm working for um, Peter's attorney. I'd like to talk to you. I'd like to talk to you about that thing that happened with the shooting. And guess what his answer was? What? He said, what shooting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what shooting? Okay. But, but see, the care system has one assumption. That's called the assumption of denial. So I expect him to say, I don't know anything about a shooting. So it wasn't like uh, a surprise. There was nothing to get upset about because it's, it's what happens all the time. So that's no problem. Go ahead, tell all the lies you want. Not a problem at all. It's part of control. He tells me he doesn't know nothing about it. That's fine. That's fine. Because what I, what I want to do right now is to begin to assess him personally. So when he reached out to shake my hand, I looked at him. I said to myself, he will tell me the truth in four visits. Now you wonder why. <laughs> why do you say that? Yes. My next why question is why that? do you say that? Well, when the, the way he walked towards me, now check this out. He has tattoos all over his face. He has okay. dreads. He's in prison for armed robbery, he's about six foot two and really threatening looking guy okay. with the dreads and everything. But I could see in his eyes that it was, he was intelligent. Okay. And he was intelligent, I knew I could reason with him at some point. And he just get to that point. So I saw it in his eyes. I said, this is all just kind of a, a cover for him, this whole bad guy thing. He's just playing it to the hilt. Mm-hmm. Plus, I can get through this. Not a problem. And I said four days. Usually it's three days for me, three visits. But I can get him for he'll he'll need four. So what I start to do, I start to develop the relationship. Now I've already made my assessment, and it's a, it's a continuing assessment of him. But I made it to the point that this is going to work. I just need to take my time with it. Mm-hmm. So I start building a relationship with him. I start talking to him. See, the, the uh, C stands for control, which we, and A stands for assessment. The relationship, what we want is a reciprocal relationship, meaning if I give him something of value, he's going to give me something back of value. It's like if someone says good morning, you're going to say good morning back because you feel mm-hmm. obligated to say good morning back. That's reciprocity. If I hold the door for you and you're going to smile, you're going to smile back. You don't even know me, but you'll smile back. Reciprocity. If I let you borrow $10, you're going to feel a need to pay me back because I gave you $10. If mm-hmm. I give you a compliment, you feel a need to, to smile. That's all control. So what the care system does is take that reciprocity and make it work for us by leading to more control. So when I'm talking to Abraham, I'm talking about him. Abraham, tell me about yourself. What's going on? Why are you in prison? 
I said, you know you shouldn't be in prison. You're too intelligent for that. Tell me about this and tell me about that. So I'm steady building up. Now I'm not lying to him. Mm-hmm. I am being truthful. I do believe he, was an, he is an intelligent person. Mm-hmm. So I continue to build him up and I continue to strengthen the relationship. So I don't even talk about what happened with the shooting. He already said he doesn't know anything about it. So there's no need to talk about it. Because, see, if, you, if I said FBI agent, FBI agent, tell me the truth. Well, right. he has two choices. He can either be defensive and rebellion or he can help me. I don't want to give him those two choices. Mm-hmm. Because I don't talk about it, he doesn't have anything to pick from. So he just keeps talking. I'm not demanding anything. Because some people think control is demanding and looking real stoic and powerful. That's not, that's not control. Control is influencing someone. You can get your boss to tell you, don't get on the Internet. You say, okay, boss. You go get back on the Internet. He had the position. He had the title. He had the power. But you're back on the Internet because there's no control. So with um, Abraham, I'm not giving him anything to resist. There's nothing to fight with. So I begin to talk to him. And what I'm saying to him makes sense. It's true. I said, if you, leave a, if you live a life of, of crime and shooting folks, then what, what, what's going to happen to you in the end? It's going to take you nowhere, Abraham. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Abraham, why do you have tattoos on your face? What's that all about? And he said, well, I don't know. I said, well, where's your dad? Because if your dad was there, you wouldn't have any tattoos on your face. I wouldn't let you do that. So I'm talking to him. And, and I'm caring. And I'm feeling him. And as we continue to talk and converse, I'm beginning to build this relationship. And he sees that I, I really do care about him. It's not manipulation in the terms of trying to beat him, beat him down, but it's manipulation in terms of bringing him up. Because people ask me, Charles, do you tear people down to get to the truth? I said, no. I build them up. I have to build Abraham up so he can handle the responsibility of telling me the truth. The people lie because they can't handle it. Like Jack Nicholson said, you can't handle the truth. I have to build them up. Well, you're talking to him like a big brother. Like a big brother, like a father, like a buddy. But but what I'm giving him is something that he can keep. It's an intangible, but it's something. Because I want and I had nothing to give him. But as I talk to him, I start seeing where is the void? What is he missing? What does he need? What does he want? Because when you you go into an interview, you have to look at it as two equal parts in the equation of success. I have to find out what Abraham wants. I know what I want. I want a confession. I want him to tell me what happened. Yeah. My fear is that he might not tell me. His right. fear is that I might take what he, tells, what he tells me and use it to hurt him. His right. want is to, be, have, to have this left alone or to get out of jail. So mm. I, have to make, I have to satisfy his wants and fears. He'll satisfy mine. I don't know that I'm not trying to hurt him, trying to do what's best and what's right. And after a couple of visits, I can see the change. As I begin to see the change, because now we're going down this road, what I call the intersection of truth and uh, cooperation. Amen. So mm-hmm. we're going down this road, and I can tell whether I'm two blocks away from it or four blocks away from it because of doing it so many times and with so many people. And eventually I get to the point where I say, you know, look, Abraham, I have a recorder here. I showed it to him that I have a recorder. I'm not going to record this unless you give me permission. But um, so on the fourth day, after I've and I have control. I've done a fine job assessing him. I have the relationship all in place, which is the platform for which the exchange is going to, make, going to be made. It is the uh, platform in terms of the strength of the relationship is what, what, is what will determine what I get. And I have to exchange something of value for something of value in return. So what I'm mm-hmm. giving him about how he should live his life and the kind of person he could be and what he shouldn't be doing and concerned about him 
uh, is something I'm giving him. So one day he says, he said, you know what, I feel bad. I said, why? He said, I feel bad because all this is my fault. Peter's in jail because of me. He was in the car with me. My brother did the shooting because he's trying to be like me. And my mother's mad at me, upset me because of all the stuff that the little brother's in. So he said, everything is on me. Everything is on my shoulders. So I had to help him get, him, get it off his shoulders. Mm-hmm. I said, no, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. I said, your brother is a separate person. He made his own decision about that shooting, not you. Yeah, he was in the car with you, but he was a separate person. And, and her, talking about Peter, Peter didn't do it. Your brother did. So there's a more important thing, uh, Abraham. It's what's right. You have to build him up so he can handle and see that what's right is important enough to, to step outside of where he was and to change his view. Because when you interview somebody at some point, my point of view has to become his point of view. He has to see the world the way I see it with respect mm-hmm. to the situation. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't, he's not going to change. So a change has to take place in him. So when I go to a, into an interview room, I want to know who he used to be, which he was a thug and, and all, kind of, you know, all kinds of things. And right mm-hmm. now he's a man in prison mm-hmm. thinking everything's his fault. But I have to look at what he can be. Because if I can't see what he can be, how can he see what he can be? Mm-hmm. So when I can see what he can be, I know he's going to get to that place where he's going to tell me. I just have to set it up right. See, when you get to the, to the end, to the exit part, it's like telling a joke. It's, a, it's all about the setup, and the setup is what you're doing to control the assessment and relationship. The exit is about timing. It's like when you're going fishing, and you put the pole in the water. You, you have the fish online. He's on the transitional path. He's where you want him to be, but now he's nibbling on the bait. So you have to be careful to get too excited and pull too fast mm-hmm. to off and go swimming away laughing at you. So you have to, give, you have to time it with experience, and you give a little tug. So the tug is what sets the hook. So my tug for Abraham was, you know, you cannot let Peter drown for what your brother did. Now, if Peter didn't, Peter should drown. But that's not right. I said, mm-hmm. you said you're a God-fearing man? Then how would mm-hmm. God look at that if you allow this man to drown mm-hmm. and to die mm-hmm. something he didn't do? Next thing you know, he says his brother did it, not Peter. And now yeah. Peter's case was dismissed. That's fabulous. So I have got, I've got to ask you, did it actually take you four visits with him? Yes. It did. And yes. the second question is, how did you, now were these four consecutive days or no. did you have time it, in between? No, they were, they were, they were um, a week in between, two weeks. It was, it was um, see, one, of, one of the um, techniques and, and, and strategies in the care system is, you, like when I went to speak to him, I, I would spend maybe two hours, sometimes three hours talking to him, mm-hmm. you know. And we had to, had to kick us out. That's how interested he was in mm-hmm. the conversation. And like I said, the first two visits, maybe the first two and a half point was not even about what happened. It was about the relationship. Without that, I'm not going to get anything. Because he, he told me, he said, I was at, they interviewed me. He said, the guy slammed the book on the table like I'm going to sit down and start talking. I didn't tell, I didn't mm-hmm. tell him anything. Right. He didn't give me, he laughed at those guys. He told me, this is what they did, they laughed. He laughed. I laughed at them. He said, I've been in the game, I know what, what that slamming the book down is, good cop, bad cop, right. I ain't telling right. anything. You know, but yet he tells me, he tells me at risk of, of his own, of, of his position and giving up his brother, someone he loved dearly. And he told me he loves his brother. But yet that's the power 
of relationship building. That's the power of the exchange. Because I gave him something he felt. He, he, can't, he wouldn't be able to describe it. But there was a need for him to give something in exchange. He couldn't just leave so, me hanging. So, Charles, why did you tell him you were co- coming back to visit him each time? What Did you say any reason or just you just showed up? Well, one of the things that I used to do in the FBI as well, I have, there's a couple of cases in the book that you will read. The book is a wonderful book. You should get it. But uh, you, when I believe in breaks, whether okay. it's a break for two days or for a week or for 15 minutes to go to the bathroom, you have to give what you say a chance to sink in. A lot of, a lot of investigators, a lot of interviews, and a rush. Now, the interview with Abraham... I could say, and I'm not trying to brag, no one could have gotten information from him. Mm-hmm. No one without this mm-hmm. system. It would not have worked. Mm-hmm. It would not have worked. But with this system, you made the impossible interview possible. And it's a long list of impossible interviews with this same system. But see, the break gives him an opportunity to think about it. See, we've got to get time for the water to seep in and get to the root of the flower and allow okay. it to grow. So, in your book, you talk about transitional path and transitional time. Is, that, is this an example of that? Yes, yes. So you, so, you don't spend your time trying to get the truth out of him. You spend your time building a transitional path that will lead both you and him to the truth. And then you give him mm-hmm. time to process it. You can't rush it. Even on the fourth visit, I knew it was the fourth visit, and I got kind of in a rush. And I said, wait a minute, Charles, slow yourself down. Slow mm-hmm. yourself down. You know, you don't be in a hurry. You know, mm-hmm. that's, uh, there's an assessment part of, of care where there are six things. Can I, can I talk about that for a second? You know, we, can we hold it? I, we need okay, to take another break. Okay. Uh, that was the voice of Charles Williams. Stay tuned. He has more to tell us. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Just been discussing interview and interrogation with Charles Williams, who's written a book on this subject. And Charles, you were just talking about interviewing Abraham while he was in prison and getting mm-hmm. him to tell you what really happened. So go ahead with that. In terms of, um, well, when we get to the exit, which is when we put where everything comes together, all the work that you did, all the control. Like I said, if you were to ask Abraham, was I in control? He said, no. Abraham felt like he was in control. And that's mm-hmm. really what you want. We don't, we don't believe in pulling and pushing. We believe in guiding. Mm-hmm. Get, him on that, get him on that path and just begin to guide him. And, um, and you begin to reason with him. You begin to enlighten rather than threaten. And those are the kind of things that, see, it gives you options. When you threaten someone, you've got a one shot. If the threat doesn't work, you're done. You could never threaten um, Abraham. I mean, he has a face full of tattoos and dreads, and he, he's a, he's a you know an experienced criminal. But when I was done, he said he's going to change his life and move forward. Because what I was giving him, uh, I mean, some people want to accuse me of manipulation, and I'm like, eh, it's not manip- It's not manipulation in that sense. Mm-hmm. The word manipulation has a bad rap. It does. Know? I'm influencing him to do the right thing. And everything I said to him was true. And if it wasn't true, it would not have been an exchange. Because you can't exchange the garbage for something of value. So what I want is something of value. I have to give him something of value. You, know, you, can't, you can't exchange a smile for a frown. This doesn't work. If I frown, so did, you're not going to give me a smile. Did he have a problem snitching off his brother? I mean, what, was there any backlash to that? You know, backlash from his brother or... From his brother, his, his family, anybody like that? No, no. Um, it, didn't, it didn't come to that uh, because what was, what was going on between him and I was for the purpose of uh, the ADA. We didn't want to go to court. We, mm-hmm. wanted, we wanted them to, to dismiss the charges against Peter because he, did, he didn't do it. He, went, he, right. he had nothing to do with the murder. So the goal was to get the case dismissed. So I told Abraham... You know, we, we, don't, we don't want Peter going to trial for something that he didn't do, end up serving life sentence for something he didn't do. Because he touched the gun, he was there. I mean, in this world, that's enough to send people to jail. It's a prison right. of his life. That's right. Just, and also, just to prove that I was right, he took a polygraph and he passed. Because the, the care system teaches you how to analyze a story mm-hmm. and how to determine whether someone's telling you the truth or not. It's it's a, several chapters on that. And when I heard Peter's story, I came to the conclusion that he's telling the truth. When I read uh-huh. Simon's story, Simon's story was just full of lies. I, said, hey, I, I, I was still amazed how the police even believed his story. Right. Because there's, there's so many gaps in it, so many decision points that are incorrect, that are just as convoluted. And I talk about those things in the book, how to tell if one story is correct and one is not. Mm-hmm. And what happened to Simon? Did he get convicted? Oh, Simon got convicted. Simon yeah, wanted to go okay. to trial, and Simon is in jail and in prison right now. Okay, okay. Well, you know, Charles, this is really fascinating, and I think, I mean, what again, what I hear you saying, I mean, you're saying manipulation, but I, I think you're just treating people with respect. Mm-hmm. 
you know? Yes, I, I, mean, I agree. You're getting them to talk to you because you really do, uh, you have a, a, a demeanor that you care about them, mm-hmm. that you're interested in who they are and what yes. they're about more than just you're there to ask them questions. That, that, that's correct. That, that's, that's why I say, you know, feel, feeling is such an important aspect of interviewing that people don't even talk about. You, you, you probably can't find one single interview system that even mentions feeling and caring. They don't mention I, it. Yeah. Half my interviews, I feel what the person is saying. But we, we, have, we have safety nets in the care system. For, for everything we believe, we have to believe something else. We call it two opposing hypotheses. Which is, which is simply an unproven theory or proposition that's accepted tentatively for you to put facts together and to further the investigation. But at some point, only one of the opposing theories can be accepted. Ergo, you have the problem of choice. So when you have the problem of choice, it always keeps you active. It keeps your mind working. When you believe one thing, that's bad because you might be believing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So in care, we, we preach against that. You cannot believe that right away. You have to keep the hypothesis, the two hypotheses, open as long as possible. That way you get to be sure. I had one guy who was lying like a rug, and I told him he was lying. I told the lawyer he was just lying. He eventually took a, a lie detector test, and they said he was lying. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the system works, you know, and it's not, it's, not, it's not, when I say he's lying, it's not based on an assumption. It's based on a story analysis and hypothesis evaluation. Interesting. Interesting. So your book contains two secret messages. Are you willing to share those with us? Oh, I I like to share everything I can. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, there's one more secret message in it. The, oh, yeah? uh, the the thing of the, the 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 reason why the book is titled an investigative investigative way of life, you have to make your interviewing and what you do and how you do it part of who you are. Has to be a way of life, like you said, Charles. You seem to really care about people. You seem to really feel about people. Yes, I do. It's a way of life. But not only how I feel is a way of life, but the way I, I analyze things, the way I observe things, the way I approach things the way I conduct my business, the way I go about it. It's all analytical. It's all observation. It's always drawing several conclusions and seeing which one is correct. But it has to become a way of life, almost natural. And that's the reason why care is based on natural principles. When you start looking at them, you can start focusing on it. You can start enhancing those natural principles. Common sense is a natural principle that we use all the time, or most of us do. But it's something that care uses as a tool. We take it and we enhance it. You know, the second thing is that the care system builds people up. Not only is the interviewee built up, but the interviewer is built up. Because for each interview, I grow. Each challenge, I grow in my skills. I grow in my confidence. I grow in my ability to talk to people. Mm-hmm. And I grow on ability to see. I can walk in the interview room right now and have a guy say about seven words, and I can tell you a whole lot about him, whether he, almost whether he did it or not. I have so many of them. But, um, it, it, and you, and you, build, you build people up and you, and you change people. The interviewee changes, the interviewer changes, and you're, you're bringing about a change. And a change is a good thing for most people. It is for me. And the third thing 
is that all the skills that are taught in the care system are transferable. I wish I could have titled the book something else, but it's, it's about communication, it's about negotiation, it's about gaining control, it's about logic, it's about thinking, it's about staying calm, about staying disciplined, about how to be responsive to people. When you're in an interview, one, one, of, one of the pillars, eight pillars that are in the system, and one of them is responsiveness. You have to be, you can't be so rigid in your approach that you can't respond to something that's taking place. With Abraham, I had to be very responsive to him. Every time he said something, I had to either have the right response. Mm-hmm. And it's analyzed. I have something called PAN, where it's probe, analyze, and move. So I say something that gets a response. And I analyze that response. See, is that where I want to take this? Is that what I want? Then I move. Otherwise, I take some kind of action or I say something else. But everything is step by step. So I can't get ahead of myself. It's like you get a winning hand, you do something wrong, you lose it. With mm-hmm. Abraham, that last, on the fourth day, I was in a hurry. I just wanted to get it. I'm like, calm down, Charles. Calm down. Mm-hmm. That's part of the assessing. You're always assessing yourself. You're always asking, am I under control? Am I focused? Am I focused on the, objective, the objectives of the interview? Because you can't go being focused on yourself. You have to be focused on the right things. And you can't do that if you're not checking yourself all the time. Those are the three secrets of the care system. Okay, so Charles, some people, um, excuse me a second, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but uh, some people listening to this program who are private investigators who do interviews might say, well, you know, the attorney I'm working for will never never pay for me going back to talk to this guy four times. How do you, how do you take care of that? Well, see, with my attorney's, if I tell him, I'll go the first time, and I'll tell him, I'll, he'll tell me the truth. It's a matter of time. Mm-hmm. And, and I haven't been wrong. I, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I've never been wrong. So once the attorney has that confidence in you, I had one attorney, he was amazed because the victims were talking to me. And mm-hmm. the victims were so enthralled with me. I mean, I didn't see my victim, but the witnesses, that the witnesses were almost like not wanting to, to, to assist the prosecutors. So the attorney said, well, Charles, are you doing something wrong? Why are you talking? What's up with this? And I said, nothing. You know, nothing. But because of that, the uh, ADA came down another seven, seven years off, off the plea. Might have been mm-hmm. 10. Because he was afraid that the witnesses were kind of like changing the story a tad. Mm-hmm. So because of that, he didn't want to lose the case. So he said, look, you know, give him 10 years as opposed to 17 or 18. Because he didn't want to go to trial not knowing what was going on. So once you develop the confidence, when I go to talk with lawyers, I become a sounding board for them, and I give them theories, and I give them principles based on my observations. They like that, because I don't think they get a lot of that. And once I start giving it to them, they can't get enough, because, wow, this guy is thinking about things I haven't even noticed. And once they get that level of confidence in you, and you come up with results, you, they'll say, go, go get them. Interesting. So, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. For this particular case, there was no, there was nothing else to do, but go and talk to this only guy that could say he didn't do it. There was no one else to say that he didn't do it. So that was the main focus of the case. To go anywhere else would have been more of a waste of time. But in that particular case, they would have said, "Go, go five times. I'm going to get it. There's, there's no question about it." Well, I like the title of your book where it says, Care, an Investigative Way of Life. Uh, I, I think you 
for me, you hit the nail on the head because, um, as you said at another time with me, it's the sum total of your life experience. So you're yeah. walking in with your life experience, and it, beca- it does become a way of life. It's not an interrogation. It is an interview. That, that, well, yeah, it is an interview. Or, or sometimes I say it, it's, it's, an, it's an engagement. It's, it's a uh, discussion. And can I speak something? Can I add something about the sum of some total of your life experience? Oh, you sure. For a sure. Okay. Um, what, um, hold on one second. Okay. When the, so when I tell people this. I say, when you go into an interview room, uh, because you're an interviewer and because you are a human being, you're not perfect. So when you walk into that room, you're bringing in with you personally with you, the good, the bad, and the ugly that makes you up. That's who you are. That mm-hmm. person goes walking in there with you. All right, I always say like this. There's five chairs in the interview room. There's one chair for the interviewee, one chair for the interviewer, and one chair for the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you got mm-hmm. five chairs. So they're sitting in there with you. So what you have to do, you have to control uh, the ugly. If you're bringing in... Uh, preconceived notions or prejudice or assumptions or your likes and dislikes or bad attitude or bullying attitude or contest attitude or expectations. The list goes on and on. You have to manage that stuff. You may not be able to toss it all out, but in the care system, you can toss it all out because we believe in discipline. Discipline is extremely important in this system. All that stuff is junk. You don't need it. But you keep the remnants of it because it, it, it gives you a baseline to know that that kind of stuff is out there. So when you're talking to someone, so you'll be, you'll, it's, it's funny where the things come from that help you connect with someone. So that's why the ugly is okay to sit there as long as you got them in control. You can't, <laughs> you can't let ugly run butt wild through the interview room. He has them right. in control. And then you have the bad. W.E.B. Du Bois once said that if you are beyond criticism, then you're also beyond growth and development. Exactly. So we have to admit when we fall short. We have to admit that we made a mistake. We have to seek yep. a better way. Yep. So, but, but the bad guy that's sitting in his chair, he's helpful because he'll say, look, you know, hey, Charles, we've already been there before. We did that wrong last time. So be careful yeah. with that one. So the bad <laughs> guy is working for you, too. He's helping right. you out. You know? And the good guy, he's the guy that uses what the ugly was worth keeping about the ugly guy. He's worth using the bad guy as well. He's saying, look, you know, I want to... I want to add to what I know. I don't want to believe that I know everything. I don't. So I want to read books. I want to talk to people. I used to, when I would arrest someone, I've been on at least 500 arrests in the FBI. I would spend at least an hour talking to each person I arrested. Yeah. That's about 3 million minutes of right. some total who I am. There was 3 million minutes of talking to all kinds of people. Right. I would go to Charles, my CI and talk to I'm you. sorry. I really have to inter- interrupt here. We oh, are sorry. In, we're at the end of our hour. There's so much more to talk about, uh, but they're going to cut us off. Thank you so much for taking your time to share your knowledge. It's just been fantastic. And uh, so the rest of you, join me again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Charles Williams. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. I'm sorry, Charles. I'd love to talk to you for another three hours. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I really enjoyed myself, uh, Francie. And I enjoyed talking to you. And I hope I'm a guest uh, again on your show. Absolutely. Absolutely.
You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 